Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we just have one story. We're going to discuss the commendable decision by ConocoPhillips to partner with Aboriginal groups in Australia in order to set up a carbon offset program that benefits the Indigenous community and helps cut carbon which will lead us into a broader discussion about companies and different stakeholders. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. ConocoPhillips, a Houston, Texas-based oil company, is developing a natural gas facility in Australia. And in doing so, ConocoPhillips was required to find a project that would offset its carbon emissions. It decided to partner with Aboriginal groups in Australia to ensure both the group's community needs were taken into account and to learn more about the conservation efforts these groups engage in throughout the region. So before we get into what this means for investors, I want to do a quick stat card for ConocoPhillips because remember, at MSCI ESG Research, we rank companies on their exposure to environmental, social, or governance risk factors on a scale from triple C to triple A. And actually, ConocoPhillips is rated double A, and it's in part because it has adopted a comprehensive environmental management strategy built on policies and implementation mechanisms, which is good including a company-wide environmental management system and performance improvement programs. So ConocoPhillips is really trying to figure out its environmental damages and fix them. Anyway, Brendan Baker and Megan Eastman joined me today because this is the discussion around stakeholders' involvement with companies. And we've talked about this a lot. The Business Roundtable and World Economic Forum issued a report saying that they want to pay attention to more people than just their shareholders. And ConocoPhillips is attempting to do just that by engaging the Aboriginal community that it operates in. But Brendan, I was wondering if you could start us off because you cover the oil and gas industry And could you kind of take me through what ConocoPhillips is trying to achieve with this? Um, It's commendable, but just if you could provide some details. Yeah, yeah, essentially. So um, in order for ConocoPhillips to get the Darwin LNG project up and running um, underneath the Australian regulation back in 2003-2006, they had to essentially purchase a certain amount of domestic offsets. in order for that project to get up and running. So uh, they were pretty innovative uh, in looking at what options were viable to to offset a certain amount of their, I guess, operational emissions to make sure that project got up and running. I should just say that that Darwin LNG facility is a natural gas facility, but could you go into some detail of like what exactly is a domestic offset? Uh, I am not familiar. Yeah, so it's actually... Um, it's had multiple names, I believe, over the years underneath different governments trying to um, push along uh, quite an ina- inadequate climate policy. But it started as uh, the, the Carbon Farming Initiative. It's called the CFI. Uh, and it was essentially it was offsets were given to farmers or landholders that would improve soil health or, you know, reforest or ensure that their forests were not cut down to put agriculture on uh, and and in that they were essentially sequestering carbon so it's actually a way to sequester carbon by supporting a lot of farmers um, and a lot of our, our um, farming industry 
to to provide carbon offsets that then could be sold to companies like ConocoPhillips or any other industry that is producing a huge amount of emissions. So it was it was actually around that it was underneath the carbon farming initiative but i guess the boundaries of scope around that policy expanded over the years um, and then you've got companies like conoco phillips who actually said okay well, we're just going to actually instead of going out and purchasing them off an independent farmer or an independent landholder we're just going to do it ourselves and we're going to work with you know local indigenous groups and um you know darwin and northern territories you know government and whatnot to actually do that themselves to offset their own emissions Right. And I mean, the ConocoPhillips is not the only company that needs to offset its emissions. There's a lot of sectors out there that are emitting a lot. And so I wanted to understand which sectors might be under the most pressure to reduce their emissions and might look at partnerships like the one between ConocoPhillips and the Aboriginal groups as a benefit. And actually, the MSCI Climate Desk's Nathan Fagel, he wrote this great piece on the matter, and he found that uh, two industries— there's a bunch that he puts in this piece, but I'm just going to focus on two, are under the most pressure to reduce their emissions. The forestry industry, and that's because countries like Indonesia, Argentina, and Brazil, they need to cut their emissions by a lot, and the best way to do that would be to curb deforestation or uh, and maybe increase reforestation. But the second industry, and this is obviously not as surprising as the oil and gas industry, and the agreed-upon track for the oil and gas industry to cut their emissions is for the sector to begin investing uh, in the production of alternative energy. But if you look at our data, and if you look at data provided by the International Energy Agency, you see that throughout 2019, major oil companies like Exxon and Chevron only spent about 0.8% of their capital on renewables or carbon capture and storage, which is not a lot. So if we take the need to cut emissions as, as a given, are these companies, these oil, these oil and gas majors, going to have to look at innovative ways to offset their carbon? Meaning, they're going to have to look at carbon offset programs, and they're going to have to partner with communities that, in a kind of insidious way, because they're going to be partnering with the people that they have displaced and hurt at times. But you know, they're going to have to figure out a way to cut their carbon, and if they're not investing in renewable energy, what's it going to be? Yeah, I think it's. Um, you know, I think there's two points to that question. Um, you've got whether or not offsets are actually a viable vehicle to reduce a country's emissions. Um, and if they are, then what, you know, which industries should do that? And to the second, then, yeah, you know, if, if they are, then, yeah, definitely, you know, the oil and gas industries are very much going to have to look at every option available to them. And if that's offsets, um, then, then, yeah, looking at examples like welfare, um, that that ConocoPhillips did and using that as a solution and broadening that across the nation or globally is a fantastic way to, um, you know, tick many boxes with, with one swipe. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think you need to think about whether or not offsets are actually um, a true viable vehicle to, to reduce emissions. So what is that going to do for companies that are reliant on these offsets? I said in the beginning of the program that these major oil groups aren't really investing much in renewables and alternative energy and carbon capture and storage. And if, if we assume that developed governments are going to eventually come down on these companies and say, you need to cut your emissions or we're going to fine you, it must be a long-term risk for these companies because if we look at the proven oil reserves of the major oil companies like Exxon, like Shell, like BP – 
they all have 50% or more of their proven oil reserves in developed countries. Exxon has 55%, Shell has 62%, BP has 46%, ConocoPhillips has 88% in the developed market. So if I could speculate wildly, if they're not investing in renewable energies and carbon capture and storage, and governments are moving to regulate the amount of emissions that they have, um, what are they going to do? They're going to have to rely on these carbon offsets, right? It, they must be building in this massive risk into their, into their business. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think companies that are reliant on, on particularly a large amount of offsets are hedging their bets in a pretty risky way. Particularly if if their you know standard operational emissions are continuing to increase and they're just they're doing some offset that you know um, that not many other places in the world might accept or even in Australia it's still not really that that well understood the amount of social pressure that that you know even our prime minister at the moment is facing around climate change is huge so if that you know if that reaches a tipping point and suddenly actually Australia does something decent from a carbon regulatory perspective offsets would be an easy thing to to stop. And say, actually, no. We need. We're just gonna. We're gonna reduce our say. We've got a safeguard mechanism. We're gonna. We're gonna strengthen that safeguard mechanism, which means all of these companies have to reduce by an extra ten percent. I think yep. that's an interesting point, Brendan, in, in kind of a, a larger, like more macro way, where you know, we've talked a lot of on this podcast and elsewhere at MSCI about physical risks, you know, the hurricanes, the fires themselves, and so on and mm. the cost that those are likely to have over the long term. But one of the things that came out in some recent research that we did is that that may be true. Those may be the larger portion of the cost in the shorter, nearer term, but that the transition costs, you know, those that are about having to change how you do business, are much more mm. sensitive, not surprisingly, to policy changes. And so in yep. that scenario you just described, you know, Australia is suddenly facing climate change front and center, and if it struggles to meet the Paris pledges and has to really implement a bunch of new regulations and crack down, then suddenly the calculation could be really different. And companies that exactly. may have been kind of coasting yeah. through on their offsets or whatever uh, exactly. suddenly have to really look yeah. at how they're doing business. Yeah, and often politicians will feel comfortable enacting policies that come down on companies if there's sufficient public pressure that builds against those companies. Like Obama infamously told the crowd that everything is easier if he feels as though he has no other choice but to enact a certain policy. And the reason I bring that up, Megan, is because you just got finished writing the 2020 trends, which y'all should go check out as soon as possible. It's great. Megan's great. The analysis is exciting and interesting. But anyway, one of our trends was about the newfound attention companies are giving to stakeholders and not just shareholders and so how does that relate to the situation with ConocoPhillips partnering with the community to implement its low carbon program yeah one of the things i was thinking just a few minutes ago as i was listening to brendan is that this particular project really kind of kills two birds with one stone because they're going after the climate aspect of it but also this kind of you know, voluntary creative work with local communities who have traditionally been more likely to suffer or struggle under the influence of a large corporation. I can kind of generalize in that way. Um, it probably does a fair amount of good for ConocoPhillips' reputation. Um, on the other hand, it's still really voluntary, and it's the company going out and working with this community, uh, which is good, but 
still leaves the community in the position of kind of having to hope that it's going to work out well as opposed to having any real kind of mechanism to hold this company or any other company operating in their area to account for how they behave and whether they take stakeholder interest into account. Shareholders are increasingly paying more attention to these other kinds of stakeholders, the ones who, who don't, don't have the formal mechanisms to have a voice and accountability and so on, because it's become increasingly clear that, that actually paying attention to those interests and managing them and looking at the kind of risks that they could pose and managing those is good for the company in the long term and they're consequently good for shareholders. And that fact's actually borne out not only in uh, just being good, but it's also borne out in how effective community groups are in preserving their communities. There was this 28-nation study led by the UN and the Rights and Resource Initiative that compared conservation outcomes in lands controlled by indigenous groups against those in government-managed protection zones. And it found that indigenous groups A, invest, are already investing substantially in conserving forests. They invest around $1.7 billion, um, which is between 16 and 23% of what um, conservation establishments like governments and multilateral organizations, bilateral aid agencies, NGOs and foundations and private ent- entities spend each year. This is as of 2018. And B, these groups actually got better outcomes, way better outcomes. They were able to preserve more land and more effectively and cheaper. So it seems like it would make good business sense to partner with these community stakeholders. Uh, But Brendan, um, are there actually a lot of partnerships like this ConocoPhillips Aboriginal Partnership in Australia, or is this few and far in between? I I guess I was saying it's a few and far between. So if we look at uh, Australia as a whole, and we look at the risk, the you know, systemic risks that are facing investors. You know, this is one project of probably only a few. You know, there is there is an increasing uh, community engagement in general, particularly in you know the mining regions that, that we operate in, because a lot of the time they're on Aboriginal land and Indigenous land, and we have to work really closely together. Um, but in terms of something that not just tackles, you know, uh, you know Indigenous. Um, employment, but also a major environmental issue, and and you know uh, a government-related offset program that is very few. You know, I've, I've probably only heard of this. Uh, I can't actually pull another one that I can think of. So, but you know, this this is a very much bottom-up approach to really get a project up and running. It's not a government-led overall climate change policy initiative to prevent systemic-wide climate risks. So we, you know, it's it's great as an example, as a solution example, but. From a systemic-wide investor risk perspective, you'd want something that comes from the top down as well to say, hey, we're looking at all of these issues. This is, this is an issue that tackles multiple ways and it means that the project is going to be really sustainable and therefore that's long-term vision. Um, if there's only one solution of that, then that's a problem. It should be a lot broader than that. And that's it for our show. I wanted to thank... Megan and Brendan for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps. I'm always trying to improve and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much and talk to you next week.
The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.